Good morning. When uh, we planned this series on uh, uh, women in the New Testament church, we I wasn't thinking ahead to uh, this morning, and so we have all the visitors that are here this morning. You happen to be here when uh, uh, I'm answering a question that came up during this series. So uh, let me begin this morning by uh, reminding us that each morning, Jewish men that are practicing Jews, and I'm not sure if it, uh, and probably also some Messianic Jews, pray this way. I thank you, God, for not making me a woman or a Gentile or a slave. So when modern Christians like us think about thanking God, how that a male Jewish worshiper thanks God for not being a woman, it raises our modern eyebrows to high heaven. Okay, so let me explain a bit more that uh, part of the uh, Traditional daily prayer is that is uh, for a Jewish worshiper is blessed are you Lord our God King of the universe you know, who's not made us made me a woman or a Gentile or a slave so it seems proof that to many people that these statements uh, uh, you know are they they prove Judaism's anti Gentile and anti female posture like is this actually correct if I get to the, the, the what I want to say. So there's kind of a, I'm telling you this because I it, it kind of like bears upon the larger subject that we're discussing here this morning. While the, and so, so we often draw the wrong conclusions. We Gentiles who hear a Jewish man pray that way would draw the wrong conclusion. From his perspective, here's how he is why he is praying like this. So like the entire law, the entire Torah is given to Israel, but many of its most important laws were meant for not everyone. So many were, were, were meant for the nations, the Gentiles. The laws applied differently to different groups, even within Israel, to the men, to the priests, to the Levites, to the kings, to the slaves. The laws did not, like the entire Torah did not apply universally the same to everyone. And so a man who was saying, thank God that you did not make me a woman, was actually acknowledging that I am willing to obey more laws than the Torah requires of a woman. And so when, so it's, there's nothing like uh, condescending or patronizing about that prayer. The po- and, 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 and same way with slave. By the way, I think uh, that generally at the time, like in the synagogue, when that prayer was prayed, when, the, when uh, the husband said, I thank God that you didn't make me a woman, his wife would say, I thank you, God, for making me the way you did. And so it's kind of like corroborating this, this whole uh, uh, concept that... Uh, that not all the requirements were saying God recognized different roles for different genders is the point I want to make here this morning. So um, this morning, this is part three of a study in uh, uh, women in the New Testament church. So why this study? Well, here's kind of like an overarching statement. Paul's writings do not lend support to the radical, unbiblical, revisions of women's roles advocated by the modern feminism movement, or to male suppression of women in the name of religion. Okay, so 
that's kind of like the overarching uh, idea here. And so we as a congregation ought to be a place where the women prosper. So there's a sense in which maybe we could say that our churches have traditionally harnessed only about half the workforce, you know, just the male half. And we have not have not drawn the sisters into ministry like we could have. And now I want to say in addition to that, that perhaps it's also, it's almost more true that we have, have enjoyed the blessing of our sisters in ministry contributing to our congregational life, but we have not acknowledged it nor valued it or articulated it. And so we want to acknowledge, this is also an acknowledgement of the, 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 the value that sisters are in the congregation. Uh, so there are two passages that I want to read this morning, and these are kind of like the, let's say these are the lightning rods, the, the lightning rod passages about uh, the role that women uh, have in the church. And they are, the first one I'm reading here is in, uh, first one is in uh, 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 15. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Okay, let's go on to the next one in, uh, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I was going to, I, I duplicated that one. Let me go to First uh, Corinthians 14. And I'm reading here from the ESV, 1 Corinthians 14 in verse uh, 33b, the last part. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Is this the one that I just read? Okay, I, I just have the wrong reference here. Well, this, this one is 1 Corinthians 14. Okay, now let me go to 1 Timothy 2. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So the question here is, is there, is this like the biblical basis for male dominance and a woman's subservience? Is that what this is all about? As we study the role of godly women in the New Testament, we seek to understand the role of godly women in our churches today and establish practices pattern on New Testament churches. Now, at face value, when we read these passages written to the New Testament churches by the Apostle Paul in the first century A.D. to the 21st century A.D. Christian living in modern America, it does sound like this is establishing a biblical basis for male dominance and like women's subservience in the church. And this impression is exacerbated by an unbiblical culture. Listen to what I, what a, a part of why we're having this series here. This impression is exacerbated by an unbiblical culture of male dominance in our churches that has led to sinful abuse of women in various ways and worse to cover up instead of calling them to repentance and open confession to restore the abused women and girls. So this is a reality here. These conditions which have crept into our churches make us susceptible to the unbiblical 
emphasis of the modern feminist movement in America that is responding to women's subservience in our society with humanistic, quote, remedies. We hold that the Bible does not need to be rewritten. It just needs to be reread to understand what the New Testament teaches about the proper role of women in the church and call both men and women to holy and purposeful living. So the purpose of this series here was to uh, to help us not fall prey to the revisionist theories of feminism to address a, a sin problem with humanistic teachings that lack the power to bring true inner change in the heart, which is what leads to true outward change in our conduct. Rather, as we study the role of godly women in the New Testament church, we seek to understand their role in our churches today and establish practices patterned on the New Testament church. So I'm going to take just a few minutes, especially with all the visitors here, but but there's a gap here from before the holidays. So I will take a few minutes to kind of like review quickly what we covered in the in the previous two sessions. Uh, we started out by saying that there are two basic principles here that we acknowledge. One is that uh, regarding women in the New Testament church. One is that in standing before God, women are equal to men. There would be so much more to say about this, I, but uh, let me just point this out, that in, in Galatians 3.28, that passage that says, for there is neither Jew nor Gentile, like Greek nor, nor Hebrew, okay, the King James Version says, neither male nor female. It actually should be translated, and the ESV says no male nor female. Well, is there a difference? Uh, There actually is a nuanced difference. So was Paul, like by saying there's neither male nor female, is he going back to creation, back to Genesis 1, and saying that in the church there is no gender? He's not saying that. He's just saying that there are no, there's no male nor female but there are, but he's acknowledging that there are genders and there are distinctions in those genders. Okay, so the first one is two principles. The first one, in standing before God, women are equal to men. The second one is based on the creation order, the man is to be the head of the woman. We may hold both of these principles without contradiction. We can test an interpretation of a Bible passage about the role of women to see if it aligns with these two principles. Uh, if there is a teaching that gives a woman headship over man, it's out of alignment. If it denies her spiritual equality with a man, then it's out of alignment. So, and then we continue. There are two areas of application. The one is that the role, is the role of women in the New Testament church's general Christian ministry. And in, uh, in the first part, we kind of discussed, you know, the, the contribution that women make to the, to the general Christian ministry of the church. The second one is the role of women in the New Testament church meetings for worship and teaching. So general ministry, but what about in the meetings? There seem to be like two different areas of, of uh, instruction that, uh, that are, are given. We noted in part one that there are many areas of Christian ministry that women are better suited for than men, and we must recognize and acknowledge their value. So that was part of part one. So then in, the, in part two, we pose this question, is the New Testament teaching bad news for modern women in our churches? And so we acknowledge historic bad outcomes. We kind of already made that statement. But I would add to this that the New Testament teaching is bad news for the sisters in our churches only if 
modern men in our churches disregard New Testament teaching today. In fact, that passage that I read in 1 Timothy 2 begins with, I wish that men everywhere would pray with by lifting up holy hands. The focus is actually not on straighten out those women. The focus is on, I wish that men were living the way they ought. So we noted in part two, Jesus in his teaching and practice elevated women from insignificance in a male-dominated society to equal participants in the new kingdom of God that he established on earth. Think about Mary and Martha. But the, what I want to, to, to take you to is, have you ever thought about why it was that at the crucifixion, the dis- disciple women, the women disciples, freely came and went with no regard for their safety, while the male disciples fled and were in hiding? I suggest to you that it wasn't just a matter of bravery, but it was a matter of the women were not regarded as threats. They were kind of like, well, they're just there. They weren't regarded as threats. Now, fast forward to when the Apostle Paul was uh, on his way to Damascus. Who was he targeting? What does the text specifically say? Men and women. Something had changed there. And what I'm trying to get getting at is that in the new kingdom of heaven that had come to earth, Jesus, like, and he, he, he said this regarding the law, but it had, had, had many aspects to it when he said, uh, we, we, that, that I'm reestablishing the way it was in the beginning. And so in this new church, this family of God, the women had equal status with the men in a way that had not been there just even just like days prior at the crucifixion. Significant shift. Now, uh, as I thought about, uh, so by the way, so when we came to this, uh, uh, this, this subject, uh, in the first session, we, I asked the question, what would you all like to hear taught? And, and one of the questions was, well, I'll, I'll tell you what some of them were. There's studies still to come. One of them was, what's this about the women should keep silent in the churches? Because we actually, I mean, they don't actually, no, they don't preach here, but they don't like keep absolute silence in our churches. Like, are we disobeying the scripture? And then uh, secondly, what's this about like a, a deaconess? Is there a biblical pattern for a deaconess? And third was uh, 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 teaching about the widows. It seemed like there was a special role for widows. So this morning we're talking about this, and as I thought about these two passages, so we could go through this thing like from an expository perspective, which means that we would just like take the passage, go through word by word, do an exegesis of the key words, and kind of say, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? And what we would learn is that throughout 2,000 years of church history and church scholarship, there a great deal has been written about these passages, and not nearly all of it agrees. And so if we went through in an expository manner, there would be a lot of, well, some say this, but on the other hand, then others say this, and uh, and maybe there's uh, we wouldn't really we'd spend a lot of time and not get to any concrete conclusions. So what I elected to do was to try to summarize this into this this multi-level question. What did Paul mean when he instructed the Corinthian church that women should keep silent in public gatherings and his disciple Timothy to not let women teach, but to learn quietly when he also taught that women should cover their heads while praying and prophesying? How does this all square up here? 
He obviously did not mean that Christian women are to keep absolute silence in church gatherings. The question seems to be more what kinds of verbal participation is praying and prophesying in church meetings. And then, of course, the question, well, how does Grace Point's you know, practice align with the Bible? So uh, are we agreed on the question here? So we have about uh, 10 minutes left here. Not quite. I'm going till a quarter after. So I'll try to, to like draw this to a, to a conclusion. So among the answers is this teaching that it had to do with, uh, excuse me for putting it this way, noisy women chattering during church. Okay, so think Middle Eastern culture. But by the way, even today yet, there's this, this sense in which like in, in times of war, like women are not guarded the same way men are in the Middle Eastern culture. And so there was this, so visualize a church gathering in Corinth. Okay, Corinth is a very cosmopolitan city. There are people from all over the world that come there because of its position where it's in on a trade route. And so followed that in the church, there were many different nationalities. There were many different languages being spoken. And when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, this is basically a corrective letter where he is in this section addressing their disorderly worship services. And he's saying, you got to bring like God is calling you, I'm calling you, I'm calling you into, to have, to have decency and order in your church services. Well, that implies that that wasn't the case. Okay, so well, what was going on then? Well, and so now, here's where you get to one of those forks. Depending which writer you read, you know, 1 Corinthians 14 talks about tongues. And let there like be that don't let tongues be spoken unless there's an interpreter and so on. So there are some writers who will, who consider the tongues there to be glossolalia, the babbling kind of tongues. There are other writers who consider them to be spoken languages that, and, and with so many different people in church speaking so many different languages, all who want to participate in the worship service, all who want to praise their, praise God in their language, there was like disorder. People were, there's, people were talking across each other. That was the one idea. The other is that, uh, that there was segregated seating where the women sat in one part of the meeting, men sat in the other part of the meeting. And, uh, so when there was a question that they did not understand in the teaching, then they would just shout out to their husbands and say, Hey, what does he mean there? And, and so there's this, like this, so, the, so that's the one, that's the one explanation. Is that sufficient? I propose that it actually is, uh, in, insufficient. The verb that is used there is used over 300 times in the New Testament with many different applications, such as sometimes it's talking, questioning, arguing, protesting. Same word is used, but the context has to, de- has to show what's meant there. And so, so if in the chapter Paul is using this verse or this verb to mean either talking or questioning or arguing or protesting, then we should in this, when it's used in these key verses, then we should figure that it means the same thing. So, okay, so just fix that in your minds and then I'll, I'll go ahead to say that the, actually, let, let me zoom to the, to the, to the, the point here. Remember, the, the, the question is, is uh, what kind of verbal 
participation is is uh, forbid is allowed, and what kind is forbidden. So it's not just chatter. In the context, Paul is talking here about authoritative preaching and teaching in the public meeting, and it's there where he says that the women should keep keep silent in the church. And I'm going to read here a summary from uh, a document by. Uh, this is a study by a man named Leroy Burney. He's in the Brethren faith. Actually, was he passed passed on? The copyright is currently held by a group from England, and I'm reading. I, I have permission to to use it here in this study. And let me read uh, about now. This zooms to praying and prophesying. Prophecy builds us up spiritually. So we, when we think about prophesying, we, we generally like put that on a plane, let's say, higher than teaching and preaching. I mean, this is like foretelling. You know, this is a prophet. This is, okay, so if the women are not to preach and teach, then for sure they shouldn't be prophesying. And it's actually the reverse, okay? Prophecy builds us up spiritually. This is based on the meaning of this word, the way it's used here. Prophecy builds us up spiritually, but it is not exposition of the Scriptures. Perhaps prophecy would include speaking praise of God, testifying to how He saved one or helped in one's Christian life, speaking a word of comfort or encouragement to believers, teaching the Scriptures, in contrast, of necessity implies a command to believe and to obey some precept. Hence, Teaching is forbidden to women in the church meeting because it is an exercise of authority, but prophecy is permitted because it is not an exercise of authority. Of course, when women do pray or prophesy at the church meeting, they should do so in a modest and undomineering manner, dressed in clothes that are not extravagant or suggestive, with some kind of modest covering on their head as a symbol of submission. So the point is that when the scripture says pray or prophesy, it covers the, that, that kind of the prophesy. Praying, we understand what it means. So obviously women are urged to pray and prophesy, to, to pray in church, in the, in the meeting. They're also urged to prophesy or that at least they're permitted to prophesy. And I'll, would, would suggest that we should understand prophecy to mean those things that I just described. Not exposition of the scriptures in which we say the, the Bible says thus and thus, and so then call people into uh, authority. Because of, and, and this is not for a cultural reason that women are not to do this, Paul takes it back to the creation order. And there's something about when you get out of the creation order, chaos results. And so he is saying, get this, the disorderliness has to do with being out of order. So get yourself into like, like operate according to the, the creation order, but don't deprive women of participating in the worship services. So I would say, well, so what does that mean for us today here at Grace Point? Okay, by the way, on, on the first Timothy, all I'll, I'll say there is not time to go into it more than to say that, that I want to, to note that this passage, we should take from this passage that the sisters in our congregation are not meant to be like unlearned non-participants in our worship services. They are encouraged to be, to learn. Now, in maybe, maybe to, in the 21st century, this doesn't sound too radical. But in the first century, this was radical. 
And so, no, sisters are, like the, the, the sisters in our congregation are encouraged to learn the Scriptures and to, to participate in the way in which by prophesying in our worship services. So how does Grace Point's practice align with the Bible? Uh, I'm suggesting that uh, we are not uh, planning that our sisters begin preaching from our pulpit to give teaching that's authoritative and upset the creation or out of the creation order that God has, uh, has established. But I am encouraging that our sisters contribute to our congregational life by nurturing themselves personally through study, by praying with us, by uh, teaching. The sisters are actually specifically instructed to teach like the older women should teach the younger women. So, uh, and, and why is that? Well, because they have time and the men don't? Well, maybe, at least in modern America, but the, I think the point is more that there are things that should be taught regarding godly living that are more suitable for the older women to be teaching the younger women than it is for the men to be teaching the younger women. So, uh, for propriety's sake, and, and things like this, there's, there, there are like real, there's a real purpose in the sisters of our congregation to diligently read the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to learn the Word of God, to teach it to other younger women, to participate by praying intelligibly, to um, participate by giving testimony to what's preached. Uh, so uh, one of the in, in the in the writings, one of the the points that the commentator ma- commentators made is that. We should be sensitive to think what what could often happen in the early church. That the, the meetings were generally smaller. Maybe maybe this would have been kind of a big one. I'm not quite sure, but I think they were generally smaller, and they were highly participatory. You know, people would like like if you said something much more than you all are used to, you would be pushing back on me and saying, "Now, hey, what did you read that? How do you know that? And what does, and and, uh, and I think this, and so on and." Uh, the sisters were not to participate in that, in that process by which we kind of like decipher, well, what does the scripture mean? But they were to participate in the giving affirmation of this is true. And so I would suggest that when it comes for, to testimony time and so on, it's entirely proper for the sisters of our congregation to maybe if you, if you want to correct the preacher, it might be better to do that in private. Okay. Well, it, it would be better to do that in private, but but if uh, uh, but it's entirely proper to affirm the truth of what was was preached. To say this was my experience in relation to this truth. This is how God dealt with me, and the and this kind of of participation. And I would add, I'll end by saying that it's that life level teaching that you personally experience. That is the most effective evangelism that we can do, much more so than what the preacher says behind the pulpit here while he, you know, pounds the pulpit. Okay, uh, are there any comments before I close here? No sister's going to say anything? Okay, well, thank you for your attention, and we'll turn it back to uh, Conrad.